Welcome to the Relatable Finance Podcast. Here are your hosts, Joseph Carl and Shane Phillips. Welcome to today's episode of Relatable Finance. I'm your co-host, Joseph Carl, Chief Investment Strategist here at Provenance Wealth Advisors, located in sunny South Florida. We have a very special guest today, one of my favorite college professors, Dr. Ankrum. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ankrum. Thanks, Joe, and thanks for being one of my favorite students. Hey, I, I tried. I'm not sure I came close, but we'll, I'll take as much as I can get. But um, to start things off here, um, we've seen extraordinary high inflation numbers recently, uh, which have some concerns over what may be in store going forward. What are your thoughts on how markets and participants should view these numbers uh, about things going forward? Well, the first, the first thing I think um, that we need to keep in mind is the distinction between the price level, a change in the price level, inflation, and a change in the inflation rate. So I, I don't want to sound like a physics professor or something there, but you know the price level could stay at the same level for a long time, in which case you would have no inflation, right? You could get a one-time jump in the price level. Um, I wouldn't call that inflation because the standard textbook definition of inflation is continuing increases in the price level. So one-time price level change, I wouldn't call that inflation. Then there's inflation where you get the rate of change of the price level at something like, let's say, 2%. So every year, the price level is 2% higher, 2% higher, 2% higher. That's what you would call inflation that is steady. Then you could get a change in the inflation rate, right, where the inflation rate goes, let's say, from 2% 2%, 2%, 2% to something like 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%. So that's a change in the inflation rate. And I think people are um, you know, having a tough debate about what's exactly happening right now. Which of those things are we observing? Um, I think it's obvious that the price level is going up. The average person um, on the street without even looking at CPI numbers would know that to be true. I think we all see that when we go to the grocery store and buy gasoline and so forth. So people can intuitively understand that. But the real question is, how is this all going to shake out, I think? So that, that's the first distinction. I would keep all those things, try to keep all those things in mind. Great. Thank you. Well, it's certainly interesting time. We had a ton of fiscal and monetary stimulus to help get us through things. Um, been a unique environment as we try to recover from this. So is there some unique factors that's contributing to the current rise in prices? Um, yeah, I, I think that, again, I think we would make a distinction between um, the supply side and the demand side. So we talk about that in microeconomics, right? Uh, you know, what causes uh, the demand for a single product to rise or the supply of a single product to rise or or fall, in whichever the case may be. But when we try to, you know, talk in terms of aggregates, you know, that is the whole economy. That's when we t we tend to think, try to make the distinction between aggregate supply and aggregate demand. And so, you know, let's look at what's happening in the world. We know that uh, things are bad in Ukraine, and that is messing up a lot of uh, supply lines. We had uh, supply shocks before. Ukraine, right? We know that COVID uh, created a, a bad scenario. We've all seen pictures of those boats floating off the West Coast, sort of waiting to get in, and all the backlog of goods and services. We even see uh, that in the grocery stores. I mean, I my wife sent me out to get something at the grocery store the other day. It was shredded cheese, right? <clears throat> and there seemed to be a plethora of some 
kinds of it, but hardly any others. And so I think, you know, again, that's something that a person going to grocery store could intuitively understand. Um, when it comes to then the supply, so the aggregate supply side, Ukraine, um, COVID, all of those things are, are factors, right? But the demand side, you know, comes from fiscal and monetary policy, and that requires us to talk about the Fed, right, and its stance with respect to, to monetary policy, and also um, then the Treasury, the Presidency, the Congress, and so forth, and what's happening on the fiscal policy side. That's government spending and taxes, right? So both of those, both of those factors uh, contribute to inflation. Now, um, again, back to the distinction I made at the, at the beginning, if you're going to have um, a higher inflation rate, or let's say accelerating inflation, I really think that it is not wise to think about these supply shocks, like what's happening in Ukraine, what's happened, what has happened with COVID as the source of accelerating inflation. The only way, I'm a traditionalist in this regard, the only way you can get accelerating and continuing inflation is, uh, it depends on what the, the Fed is doing, the central bank. And so if you look at um, you know, the aggregates, the money supply has increased dramatically uh, in the last couple of years. And this is because of what the Fed has uh, been doing with respect to monetary policy. Now, there's a lot of discussion going on today. You see um, Jerome Powell in the news a lot uh, trying to, you know, talk us down and make sure we're, re we're relaxed and not as worried as we have been, right? But I think um, it's going to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it all in the Fed's court and say it's up to them to determine what actually happens in the, uh, the future, the long run future. Again, you know, one, two, three, four years out. But I would also uh, point out that inflationary expectations are a key part of this. Let's see. I'm trying to remember when you graduated, Joe. When did you When did you graduate? When did you? Graduate? I was a, a part of the wonderful class of 2007. Okay. See, when I started teaching in the 80s, we, we had very high um, inflation rates, and I had this uh, little notebook that I kept on the side, right? This sort of you know, like what are mortgage rates and um, it was, it was fun to track that over the years. I taught money banking, the course, the course that you were you were in. But try to try to emphasize the role of inflationary expectations in all of this. And as it turns out, I wrote this dissertation a long time ago that was, you know, dealing with inflationary expectations, you know, trying to measure them and and and, and determine what effect they have on the state of the economy. But the one takeaway here would be that if we live through a very long period of low inflation, like such as you such as you've lived through, right? You might think 2% is normal, 2% is normal, and you could just live like that forever. But it might be that we have some kind of a change in mindset here. And if people think that inflation is going to be, let's say, 4% every year for the next 5, 10 years, whatever the case may be, that's all going to get factored into things like mortgage rates and also um, wage expectations, right? So if you, if you know that um, inflation is going to be 4% forever instead of 2%, forever. You're going to start thinking about that um, in terms of the wage demands that you make on your employer. So I hope you're asking for a raise, Joe. I'm trying, Dr. Rankin. <laughs> I am trying. So and I appreciate you pointing that out. But we certainly live in a very unique environment. Uh, just to remind everybody, the, the Fed does have a dual um, mandate in full employment and stable prices. So they're trying to balance those two. Um, and to Dr. Rankin, Ankrum's point, it's, it will likely depend on what the Fed tries to pursue going forward, but they're certainly paying attention to these numbers. But Dr. Ankrum, 
Uh, really, since the financial crisis, on the fiscal side of things, we've seen extraordinary increases in government debt. Does this factor at all into this equation? No, oh, I think it does because um, I would, uh, you know, I'm going to try to pick your brain about how much you remember here from the good old days, Joe. I'll, I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but I, I would have probably, you, you might recall me saying something in class like the following Government spending uh, can only be paid for with taxes, borrowing, or money creation. That's just a basic budget constraint. That's not a theory um, or, a, or a model or anything like that. It's just, it's just what it is, right? So um, if we have big blowouts in government spending like we have in the last couple of years, then and, and possibly even on the horizon, I mean, we don't know what, what's, what's ahead of us, but we do know that uh, government spending has increased a lot. It's not been paid for by taxes. And the catch-22 then is, uh, is it going to be through borrowing or by money creation? And I, I just don't think that uh, the government is going to be willing to, you know, let the debt explode even more. I could be wrong about that. So, so the burdening, again, I'm going to put it back in the, Fed, the Fed's court, right? The ball is going to be back in the Fed's court. They're going to decide how much uh, money creation there will be to pay for all of this government spending. And if money supply grows up or, you know, fails to fall, as they um, suggest that they are trying to do, back to some normal level, then we're going to see inflation. So I, I think um, the Fed is in a really, really tough spot. I would agree that they're in a tough spot, but uh, I would also suggest that they have a ton of talent and eventually they will get that equation right. Um, and I, I do uh, take everything you taught me, Dr. Ankrum. I like to think about an analogy um, when it comes to the level of debt, that it's, it's similar to buying a home. And uh, when you initially buy a home, uh, the cost of that mortgage in a given year um, may be a percentage of the income that you have. But if you take out a 30-year mortgage, your income should grow. But the cost of that mortgage as a percentage of your income should decline because your wages are growing. But that should be the case. That's so, especially true for fixed-rate mortgages, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the government has an opportunity here to try and stimulate the economy, get strong economic growth. That should lead to greater tax dollars coming in and allow them to eventually wind down this government debt. Um, but nonetheless, given the amount of stimulus that we had during the pandemic um, and how abrupt, you know, robustly the economy recovered, we're seeing a lot of demand and supply imbalances, uh, which is creating a lot of price pressures and concerns over inflation. But um, I think you laid it pre out pretty well earlier with the price level. Is there a difference between core inflation and broader inflation? I, th I think so. It's pretty popular. I mean, even the Wall Street Journal and, you know, popular uh, sources like that, that make the distinction, basically leaving out food and energy. So just think about the, constructing a price level with all the normal things that you expect to be in there, but to leave out food and energy. And the argument there is that those are so volatile, you're just taking out noise and that you're left with some, you know, sort of, uh, stable component to, to the inflationary. So I think it's useful to, to make that distinction. Um, <clears throat> you know, back, back in the day, again, when I did my dissertation, I, I incorporated um, an, an economist by the name of Otto Eckstein, right? He created this core inflation measure that was basically an attempt to take the inflation rate and strip out this, the aggregate supply part and the aggregate demand part. So I'm tying back to something that I discussed, you know, a few minutes ago. That, that measure of core inflation is, is slightly different from the one that we're seeing, you know, referred to in the popular press these days. But I think I think it's a useful one if, if we could, uh, you know, revive 
uh, that measure, or, or just if, if it doesn't exist anymore, I'm sure it doesn't, um, keep, keep our eye on core inflation and think of it as the stable component. Watch it. So you might see, you do see food and uh, energy prices spiking now. So I'm almost arguing for you know, removing that component and looking look to keeping your eye on that stable part and watching, watching its trend. So that, that's the argument that I'm making about core inflation. Fair enough. Great points. Um, things have been moving very quickly, and we've obviously have a lot of pressure on prices at the moment. Is this something you would expect to continue, or would you expect it to be short-lived? Well, you, you, uh, I think I gave you a pessimistic spin a few minutes ago, and you tried to you tried to bring it bring in a note of optimism and and i appreciate that but i think i'm going to have to revert to my more pessimistic uh, uh you know idea because again i, I don't think that the fed is, uh, the government is going to going to want or let um, interest rates rise too much and the reason for that is now that we have um, such a big government debt interest payments on the national debt could chew up a big portion of government spending and even gdp and so, um, again, I think it's right back in, in the Fed's court. And I don't think they're going to be able to uh, slow down the rate of growth of the money supply or bring it back to more, more stable levels. So I'm, I'm expecting that uh, this is going to continue for a while. Now, of course, your question is always about the time frame, right? Uh, so, again, back to the very beginning, you know, price level versus change in the price level, et cetera. But I, I would think we're going to have higher inflation rates with us for a few years, right? And then it will depend on the reaction of, of the Fed about how that shakes out, uh, say, five years from now. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I, interesting times. The Fed did adjust its mandate a couple of years ago to move to an average inflation targeting regime. So that's a more ambiguous uh, terminology and does give them the flexibility. So I think that aligns well with what they're trying to do. Um, would you expect how would you, if it was up to you? And you were the uh, individual leading the Fed. How would you go about moderating or reversing the recent rise in inflation? Well, the only way to moderate or reverse the rise is, again, to get the, 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 the money supply under control. I mean, I still um, think that Milton Friedman has wisdom in, in his sort of mantra from a long time ago that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So um, they, they can do it. Um, the question is, do they have the strength uh, to do it. I mean, you, you had a tough guy like Paul Volcker back in the day who actually, you know, said, we're doing this, right? And we're going to suffer the pain. Um, I don't know if the current Fed, especially, um, you know, given everything that's going on, I don't, I don't know if the, if the current Fed can actually pull that off. I hope I'm wrong. But uh, if, I'm, if I'm wrong and they do uh, work their magic to reduce inflation, I think there will then be a uh, you know period of temporary pain that's associated with that. That's certainly uh, a cause for concern. But at the same time, if I were to counter my old professor, I would argue that uh, we have some very strong disinflationary forces like globalization, which could be reversing. But technology, which is uh, you know put a challenge on labor markets, and we do have a very strong labor market right now pushing wages up. But would you, you did consider, well. You did well. Those are supply. You know, that's right. You're it's kind of like a supply cider there. The, what we used to call supply ciders, right? You're confident that technology and globalization will continue to push aggregate supply up and, and moderate. So I'll 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 uh, I won't contest that point. I'll uh, say good job, Joe. Well, fair enough. Thank you, Dr. Ankrum. Would you consider the Fed to be really independent? 
or truly independent? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the thrust of everything I've said is probably probably the answer is going to be no. I mean, that used to be sort of the thing that was written in all of the introductory macro textbooks, right? When you got to the role of the Fed and the function of the Fed, that, that sentence was always in there. The Fed is independent of fiscal policy. That means they're supposed to, you know, sit in that room and not even care about, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, but, you know, not even care about what's going on out there in the rest of the world. They're, they're, they're uh, basically like a machine that cranks out the money supply growth that, uh, you know, a couple percent per year. That was, that's the flip side of, of Friedman's, uh, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So if your economy is going to grow at, uh, you know, 3%, let's say, and you're going to have a steady state inflation of 3%, you just set the money supply growth machine on a, on a trajectory of 6% and don't do anything else. Don't, you know, go out and play golf or something, right? But, uh, uh, yeah. So are they are they independent? Could they really do that? Um, again, ties back to everything I was saying before. They're going to be there will be pressure to let uh, interest rates go up, right? And they and we we talked a moment ago about the uh, you know the problems with that. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I keep circling back to the same same uh, sort of pessimism and how they're in a really really super tight spot. Absolutely. Uh, you know this is. The economy and uh, financial markets were kind of shocked back during the financial crisis, and we experimented with some things and essentially have been continuing to experiment with some unique policies ever since then. So uh, interesting times from a theoretical yeah. economic standpoint. Um, but do you think the Fed will take away the punch bowl? I think um, they're going <laughs> to try to use the, the analogy. I think they'll... Uh, quietly sneak it away after a period of time but everybody yeah, fill your glass up one more time before we before we pull it away something like that now I think the gist of the gist of uh, what I was saying before is you know a quick takeaway like uh, Volcker said you know we had to have uh, we've got to take our medicine Wait, let's just do it now and get the pain over with rather than uh, string this out so I don't I don't think they will but uh, that punch bowl metaphor is a, has been a popular one for a long time right Absolutely. Yes, they may. It, we're still interesting times recovering from the pandemic. We now have the situation between Russia and Ukraine that's putting you know, other inflationary pressures on the situation. Uh, one would argue that they should let the economy strengthen for a little while longer before they try to put too much pain on it. But yeah. uh, we, that will remain to be seen. But what do you think this means for bond yields going forward? Well, um, my basic uh, model is that uh, bond yields are composed of two basic things, right? There's the sort of um, uh, natural uh, uh, long-run inflation-adjusted interest rate associated with something like the rate of capital formation, let's just say 3% there. And then you take that 3% and add to it the inflationary expectations part, and that's going to be the key. So if uh, inflation is expected to be you know, 2%, then three plus two is five. That's where bonds bonds will land. So I don't see there's any way that bond yields will not go up. Um, but uh, I could be wrong because I'll, I'll take a point that you made earlier about the role of technology and globalization holding down that natural rate of long run interest, long run natural interest rates. So let's let's just say that uh, your uh, the, your points are well taken. 
and that's zero. And then if inflation gets to be um, under control at 3%, then you can just add zero plus three and get three, and you can say, well, okay, not much is going to happen to bond yields in, in the long run. But I think, I think for me, um, I'll say three plus four, seven percent. I think we'll be looking at bond yields in the seven percent range in short order. That's that's a, that's a that's a bold prediction, Doctor Ankrum. But I like it. I appreciate the uh, the true uh, logic behind it, and I appreciate you taking the time today, uh, as well as all of your amazing uh, lessons while I was in school. Um, Hope you can, can join us sometime here in South Florida, and I appreciate all the listeners tuning in today to our episode of Relatable Finance. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at provwealth.com or check out our website at relatablefinancepodcast.com. Provenance Wealth Advisors is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services, Inc. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services are offered through Provenance Wealth Advisors and Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Any opinions are those of Relatable Finance Podcast and PWA, and not necessarily those of Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance that any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision. It does not constitute a recommendation. Investment involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against a loss. Investing involves risk and investors may incur a profit or loss. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Future investment performance cannot be guaranteed and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions. Any examples given in the podcast are for illustration purposes only. Actual investor results will vary.